Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. It's so good to be with you all this morning. My name is Donnie Abbott, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I get the pleasure of coming out here about once a month or so to share with our Windsor crew, and uh, I hope that you all have had a wonderful summer. It's crazy how quickly the summer has gone by, isn't it? I mean, uh, our kids are back in school, and here we are trying to get back into the fall rhythm. Well, I hope everybody has a good school year. Well, on June 20th of 1975, uh, it was the date of release for a movie that struck fear into the hearts of beachgoers everywhere. I mean, even as an eight-year-old kid, I was growing up in Southern California. Uh, My beach was Huntington Beach, so I was about 20 or 25 minutes from Huntington. But I distinctly remember the wariness I felt before entering into the water, all because of this crazy movie. The setting of the film was Amity. And Amity had a local sheriff, Sheriff Brody, who had hired a marine biologist to come and investigate a rash of shark attacks that had taken place off the shores of their picturesque little town. I'm sure that you all know uh, the film I'm talking about, but for those few of you who perhaps haven't figured it out, maybe this will help. you, doesn't it? I mean, you just hear that and it strikes fear into your heart. I mean, that's got to be one of the most recognizable movie theme songs in, in history. Of course, the movie is Jaws. And as the film progresses, Sheriff Brody and the marine biologists, they frantically attempt to warn Amity's mayor that he needs to close the beach down. And if he doesn't, there will be more shark attacks. And of course, had he heeded their warning, uh, that would have been the end of the movie. And what fun would that have been, right? You and I, we live in a world that is filled with warnings. And warnings are things that we can either choose to obey or choose to ignore at our own risk. We just saw some recent uh, warnings that took place in Southern California with the, with the hurricane that came through there. People were given a warning. There are street signs in our world that provide us with warnings from caution signs to stop signs, do not enter, slow down, children at play, no trespassing, and my personal favorite, alligator crossing. Our parents, when we were younger, they provided us with warnings, right? They, they said, don't talk to strangers, look both ways before crossing the street. Don't sit too close to the TV because why? Because you'll go blind, of course. 
Even songs over the decades have gotten into the act of warning from Dion and the Belmonts who warned us to keep away from Run Around Sue to the rock band Coldplay who had a huge hit about lost love titled Warning Sign. So we're all familiar with warnings. And today, as we finish up chapter 9 in the Gospel of Mark, we'll get into a passage where Jesus had some very strong warnings. We'll only cover 12 verses, but these 12 verses, there's a lot packed into them. There's mention of demons, which as we know in the Gospel of Mark, that seems to be kind of a constant thread throughout. We'll see Jesus also continue using uh, small children to illustrate a point. He'll do this once again in chapter 10. And he warns us about sin and the dangers of hell. So it's not exactly a warm, fuzzy kind of message, but it is an important one for all of us to pay attention to. So let's pick up in verse 28. Teacher, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Now, you might remember that last week, the 12 were arguing about who was the greatest among them. And again, here is one of the 12, John, pointing out his and the 12's exceptionalism by complaining about someone who was not part of their crew but who was doing the work of casting out demons. Now, as further context here, to understand why John may have been upset, you might remember earlier in chapter 9 that the disciples could not cast out a demon out of a boy. You remember that? The demon was in the boy and would cause the boy to fall into a fire or cause him to fall into water to try to drown him. And the kid's dad frantically came to Jesus and said, I asked your disciples if they could drive out the spirit, but they could not. For whatever reason, the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. And he's fed up and exasperated with everybody. So he kicks butt, takes care of the demon himself. And uh, perhaps what we're seeing here are hints of jealousy that are at play because this other fellow was doing something that the 12 could not do. So Jesus addresses their point, their complaint. Verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is is not against us, is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If you're following along in the app and in the outline, the first point is right here. What you do matters. What you do matters. In a positive way, nothing is wasted when it's done in the name of Jesus. And here, Jesus is sort of contrasting two extreme situations. On one hand, you got a demonically possessed person, and on the other, you have a cup of water, right? I think we could all admit that seeing a demonically possessed person would be an extreme, out-of-the-ordinary situation. 
He's saying, if someone is casting out demons in my name, go ahead and let them. But here's where the cup of water comes in. Good works doesn't have to be as spectacular as casting a demon out of someone to make a difference in a person's life. You know, one thing that I've learned over the years is the seemingly inconsequential things that I've done for others, and you have also, often those are the things that make the biggest, most uh, lasting impact. Bringing over a timely meal or sharing a kind word can change a person's life. And the truth is that I don't think any of us really understand the impact we have on others. But here's the other thing to go along with all of this, is that if you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, people are watching. People are watching probably with raised eyebrows because they want to know what is it that's different about you. They're listening to the language you use. They're watching the way you treat others. They want to know if the fruit of the Spirit is present in your life. And they may not even know what the fruit of the Spirit is, but they do recognize if you have love and joy and peace. They can see if you're patient with others, if you're kind. When you and I love others, we're reflecting the love that God has for them. That's why it matters how we treat people. Our actions are a reflection of God's love for us. And since you and I have been, God, have been loved by God, we ought to do good and extend love to others as well. And, of course, on the flip side, what you and I can do matters in a negative way as well as Jesus explains in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Remember from last week that Jesus, he, he took a small child into his arms. This is a continuation of last week's conversation. So the kid is still in Jesus's arms. But Jesus here, he's not just talking about small children in this passage, included are people who are young for sure, but also people who are new to the faith, those who are childlike in their faith. And it's here that Jesus, he now introduces the consequences of sin. If a person is rewarded for doing something as simple as providing a cup of water in Jesus' name, so too will there be consequences for leading others in sin. And here's the second point. Sin has consequences. Now, this might be a no-brainer to us, right? I get that. But what Jesus is saying here is that don't you dare be the one who opens the door to sin. Don't be the one who leads the innocent to sin. And to illustrate the severity of leading others to sin, for those who do that, Jesus says it would be better if that person had a millstone tied to their neck and were thrown into the ocean. Now, during that time period, 
Millstones were used to grind flour. There were small ones for smaller household tasks, larger ones for bigger projects. And here, Jesus is referring to the larger millstone, which weighed at least a ton. I mean, we, we can't even imagine having something that large tied around our neck. And remember, the mindset of a first century person just being thrown into the sea would have been absolutely horrifying. But to have a millstone tied around one's neck, and that would have been even worse because you were being thrown into the abyss. Remember, the abyss in their mind was this scary place filled with darkness. Bad things lived in the abyss. Jonah, Jonah was swallowed by a creature that arose from the abyss. So again, Jesus here, he's contrasting two things. On one hand, he has a small child as, uh, to use as an object lesson to illustrate the innocence of people brand new to the faith. And then on the other hand, he uses a millstone to point out the severity of sin. And as Dr. Foth mentioned last week, sin is coming up short. Sin is missing the mark. And it's sin which caused the separation between mankind and God. And we see a picture of this going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve ignored the warning of God to not eat the fruit, they ate it. And because they didn't heed the warning, they were cast out of the garden. Remember, it was in the garden where they enjoyed fellowship with God, but after their sin, they were cast out. And the reason is that their sin and ours is an absolute affront to God. In defining sin, this one author writes, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's a pretty thorough definition of sin, isn't it? But sin, I, I totally get this. It's not a very popular topic to talk about. I mean, it's not something you bring up at your next dinner party. In fact, in our culture today, the word sin, it's a very churchy word, and it's probably looked at as being outdated. And it's often replaced these days with words like vice or error, offense, indiscretion, maybe even bad habit. And these words are replaced are used to replace sin because they want people want to soften, soften that word in people's lives. And I don't think there's any one of us who truly understands the severity of sin. But this is what Jesus addresses as we keep reading. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now talk about a very confusing passage of scripture, right? Is Jesus actually talking about cutting off body parts to make ourselves right with God? Well, fortunately, no. He is not. What Jesus is using here is hyperbole. It's like when, when we carry something, right? And we put it down, we say, man, that weighs a ton. I mean, how do any of us know what a ton feels like, right? So Jesus, he's using extreme language, exaggeration to point out how dreadful sin is and the measures that you and I should take to get rid of it. But he's not literally talking about cutting off one's hand or foot, or to actually pluck out an eye. Now, there is no doubt there have been some throughout history who have taken these words in a literal fashion. There were the ascetics, this group of kind of religious hermits who would often withdraw from the world and go live out in the desert or up high on a mountain as a way of escaping from the sensual pleasures of the world. Some would even go as far as emasculating themselves with the thinking, if they did that, then they would avoid temptation. Now, answer me this. Can a person cut off their hands and gouge out both eyes and still sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't need our hands, feet, and eyes to sin. So cutting off body parts does not solve the sin problem. Because as we all know, sin doesn't begin in a hand, an eye, or a foot. Where does sin begin? Begins in your heart. Begins in your mind. But it is interesting, the body parts that Jesus points out here. He mentions the cutting off of the hands because, of course, we use our hands to handle things. So he's telling us, be careful what or who you handle. He talks about cutting off our feet because our feet take us places, right? We can't go anywhere unless our feet take us there. So be mindful of where your feet are taking you. He talks about gouging out the eyes because of the obvious. Our eyes watch things. Be mindful of what you watch. And I want to focus here on the eyes for just a minute because of the rampant use of pornography in our culture. For you to radically deal with this sin means that you might need to give up your computer. You might need to give up your phone. And someone can say, well, you know, I have my calendar. I have my contacts are in my phone. You need to get rid of it. You need to pluck it out. You need to go to a hard copy calendar system. This is what Jesus is saying, gang. Take radical measures when it comes to addressing sin. And here's the other thing that I think all of this comes down to. I really think this is also about peace. Here's the third point. Dealing radically with sin isn't easy, 
but it does lead to peace. Because let's be honest. Let's be honest this morning. Sinning can be fun, can it? Right? I mean, that's part of why we do it. It momentarily satisfies our pleasures. But when you and I indulge in sinful behavior, there is almost always a lack of peace. After you watch that show or you eat that food or you buy that purse or drink that whatever, you think, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that, right? You are lacking peace. If you have to hide your sin, you're without peace, guaranteed. Because you're constantly on edge. You have to stay out in front of it to keep the sin hidden. You got to keep hiding the bottle, keep hiding the drugs, hiding the porn addiction, hiding the side chick, whatever it is. It's a game where there is no peace. So peace is a fruit that will blossom in your life when you and I radically deal with sin. And to do so is an internal issue. Because remember, Jesus told us earlier in the Gospel of Mark, where sin comes from. We read, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's what? Heart. That evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawless, lawless, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The word heart throughout scripture refers to the whole of a person. It represents all that a person desires and a person's decisions. It's the moral core of who we are. The heart is where the will is located. Our attitude reside in the heart. Our thoughts, words, and actions all reflect our heart. The other thing about sin is that it's pervasive. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the pervasiveness of sin and how it affects everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. All of us fall short of God's glory. And unfortunately, the sin inside of each and every one of us is terminal. As Paul writes again, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The end result of all sin is death. There's just no way to shortcut it. And then toward the end of our passage, Jesus, he starts to talk about another popular topic, hell. With worms and unquenchable fire. I mean, what is all of that about, right? The word hell here is in reference to the word Gehenna that represented the valley of Hinnom. And this valley was located just south of Jerusalem. It was here that the idolatrous Jews introduced the worship of of fire gods and where they sacrifice their children to the pagan god Molech. This valley became 
over time, the city trash dump. In this dump would be the bodies of dead criminals, the carcasses of animals, all sorts of filth would be cast into the dump. And then they would light the trash on fire. And of course, people would see the smoke rising. And this became a symbol of the place of future punishment of the wicked and was representative of the reality of hell. Now, hell for sure is a very interesting topic. And it's one that I feel demands its own message. So I'm going to just kind of set that aside for another time. But what we can glean from this is that there are real consequences for our sinful behaviors and choices. Now, this is all pretty dismal stuff, isn't it? Talk about a downer. So let's end on a high note. What do you say? I love this quote from Pastor Timothy Keller. He says, you are more sinful than you could dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare to hope. Don't you love that? And hope is really what we need here in light of all this sin talk, right? But we first have to establish what's deathly wrong with all of us so that we can look in desperation to where our hope lies. We have to have an understanding of the bad news so that we can try to comprehend what makes the good news good. And remember earlier, Jesus told us that our heart is the root of sin. Well, if that's the case, then what do you and I need? We don't need to lop off body parts. What do we need? We need a new heart. And this is where the good news comes into play regarding our sins. As John writes this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing that you and I can do to pay for our sins. Nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves right before God, except to ask him to forgive us of our sins. And when we ask for forgiveness, God's word tells us, he promises he will forgive us our sins. And in doing that, he renews our heart. In Paul's letter to Titus, we read, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. And then, of course, we read in the Gospel of John what's probably the most famous and popular scripture in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen? Amen. Here's the fourth and final point. We are saved because of Jesus's sacrifice. Jesus's death on the cross was and is the ultimate payment for our sins. He provided the ultimate sacrifice. What you and I have to do Simply believe. As Paul, again, in, in Romans writes, if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the good news. The good news is good because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for our gathering this morning amongst family and friends. We thank you for our church, that it's a safe place where we can come and worship you and learn more about you. God, we thank you for your word as it's holy and it's true. Jesus, thank you for being the ultimate sacrifice, going to the cross, death on the cross, dying the death of a criminal on behalf of each and every one of us. In doing that, God, you, you went to bat for us and you provided a, a way back into a right relationship with God. Jesus, thank you for that. Holy Spirit, may you continue to enlighten us, convict us of sin, lead us into all truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.